0: Hey, good morning. good morning. As Dan said, my name is Tony Diekman. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to share God's Word with you this morning as we continue in Romans. Uh, last week, as I would encourage you to do, is go back and listen to some of the podcasts that if you haven't been with us each and every week, which I would encourage you to be with us each and every week. Go back and listen and hear what we've said and hear what God's Word has said so we can put into context the things that happen in subsequent weeks And I would encourage you to come back next week because there's going to be things that we address tonight or today that won't be addressed until next week. And so fully unpacked until we get to the end of this. So keep coming back. Keep bringing your Bibles. Uh, Bring your Bibles with you so you can write notes in the margins. You can write notes in your journals. Bring your Bibles with you, whether in written form, in paper form, or in your digital form. We encourage you to bring your Bibles. Like Peter said, I'm going to remind you of the things you know until I don't have any breath left in this body. I'm gonna continue to remind you of those things. And we're gonna continue to say to you, bring your Bibles with you to church. So as we begin today, just a couple of things I wanna get to. Last week, Dan introduced us to this term justification. If you weren't here, it's a word that means being declared righteous. It's a way that put it as Dan put it last week, just as if I'd never sinned. That's the way God declares us. God has, through the work of his son, giving us faith, declared us righteous, has justified us before God. And on your sermon notes card, there is that definition at the top. So if you weren't here last week, you can refer to it. There's also another word we're going to get to this week that you hear in church or you read in the Bible that maybe you, like, don't know what it means. It's sanctification. And sometimes we get these two words kind of, like, intermingled, and we don't really know what sanctification means. So there's a definition there. We're going to get to that later in chapter 6 but I wanna draw your attention to that, as well as I've divided this chapter into two sections, one through 11 and 12 through 23. And we'll go through them that way and give you some chances to write on your sermon notes card and put some things so you can take it back and study. One of the things I talked with somebody earlier today was, you go back and you study this, after you hear what's taught, it kind of puts it in a new light. I think it's a great way to kind of consider that. So how many of you have seen this movie? in one form or another. Yeah, Errol Flynn or Kevin Costner or Disney's animated version, you know. Robin Hood and Little John running through the (laughs) forest. So, yeah. You know, it's a story about Robin Hood, but really the backstory there is this King Richard. He's the rightful king and he's off at war and his younger brother, the Prince John, is the evil one. He wants to be king. And so he starts plotting to overthrow his brother while his brother's away. And you've got this re- rebel, Robin Hood, who's trying to prevent him from exercising his power. But you see it all throughout movies. You see it in TV series like Games of Thrones. Right? It's, it's, it's this idea that somebody wants to be king. There is a rightful heir to the throne, but who is it? Everybody's claiming it. So there's all these usurpers, is the word. Somebody who tries to usurp the throne. Somebody who has an illegitimate claim tries to take the throne by force. You see that in movies like Little Mermaid. You see it in movies like The Lion King. And maybe you're starting to think of other movies where you see this kind of character, it's usually this usurper, some evil character that's trying to overthrow the rightful, good king. You see that in Scripture. You see it in the life of David, King David, whose own son Absalom decides he wants to be king while his father's still alive. And so he plots to overthrow his father. But it goes even further back. It goes all the way back to the beginning because there's the one true king, God, and his usurper is Satan, we're told. Once an angel decided, I want to be king. I want to be God. And he puts his plan into motion and he comes into the garden and he tells man, guess what, you could be king. You could be like God. When really what he's saying is, if you usurp God's power, you'll give me more authority, and then I can be king. The promise was never that you could be king. The promise was that he could be king. And so we see this usurpation all throughout the Bible, and we see it in our own lives. We see that in our own character, in our own like, sinful self, right? we see this, like, I could do that better. I have no idea why my boss would do something idiotic like that, but I know I could do it better. I don't know why my parents have these rules. I know better. I don't know what my wife was thinking. I know better, right? We're always trying to usurp the authority of someone else. And so that's sort of in our character, and we see that. And Paul's pointing it out here in this text, saying, we've been justified, but there's still this like old self. There's still this part of us that wants to usurp that authority. And he's saying, that's crazy. We don't. We're not that person anymore. We've been set free from that. And that's what he's going to talk about today. Before we get there... Would you pray with me as we begin? Father in heaven, you are the true king. As we just sang, the king of our hearts. Not just figuratively, but literally the king of our heart. Father, we ask you this morning that you would mold us and shape us. You would mold and shape our hearts. That you would teach us to follow. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all the hearts assembled here would be truly pleasing in your sight our God, our Rescuer, our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, turn to Romans chapter 6, and I'm using the ESV version as I read to you this morning. Paul begins in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? What is he talking about? He's actually going back and referring to other things that he said earlier in the book. In uh, chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 20, he asks this same question. That he begins to ask are we to continue to sin that grace may abound by no means can we who died to sin live in it any longer he goes back and addresses that same question and he says it makes no sense for us it makes absolutely no sense for us to go back and be something that we're not anymore he asked the question sort of rhetorically, but he's gonna go from this point on and explain the evidence of why that's true. But to give you some context about what Paul is talking about, because it can be sort of ambiguous when you read the English, what he's saying. And scripture talks about us as human beings being more than just bodies, like physical bodies. That we have this soul, we also have this spirit, that we're not just the physical body. You know, I heard it once said that We're not, we don't have a soul, right? We are a soul, but we have a body. When when Paul talks about you and I, or us, or we, in some regards, he's talking about our souls, our spirits inside of us, not about our physical bodies. He separates those, as we know. He separates those. And so in some regards, he talks to us about our spirit and our soul. In other regards, he's talking to us about our physical presence here. And here he's saying, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's talking about our whole self. But no means. How can we, meaning our spirit and our soul who have died to sin, still live in it? Differentiation. He goes on. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He says, literally, our spirit, our souls have been baptized into death. We have died. That part of us was crucified on the cross with Jesus. And in the waters of our baptism, there was this great exchange that happens. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, sinless, he goes down into the water and he comes back up and the Spirit of God descends upon him. Figuratively speaking, think about that water where all of these people have been baptized for repentance by John. And now Jesus goes down into the water sinless and is buried in our sin in the water and comes and is raised to life out of the grave to new life. When we are baptized, there's this great exchange. We go down into the water, our sin remains in the grave as it's been put to death by Christ. And we emerge from the water sinless, righteous, in our soul and our spirit. God has declared us so. In baptism, the gospel is preached. Remember in Romans chapter 1, 16, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. And we taught that it's the gospel, when it's proclaimed, when it is heard, that wrenches the heart and takes hold of the heart and produces faith and at the same time produces the righteousness of Christ and at the very same time Gives us a new life, a new spirit, a new soul. No longer the old soul. No longer under sin. Literally, it has been crucified with Christ. It is dead to sin. Literally. It's easy to see when we talk about the physical body being dead. You would never talk about the physical body dead actually living again. Or walking or feeling anything. Anything. You could poke it, you could prod the physical body, and there would be no reaction. Paul saying the same things happen in your spirit and your soul. The very same thing. It is no longer the same. He goes on to say that we too might walk in this newness of life. This new spirit, just as Jesus was raised. We too might walk in this new creation that he has given us. He says it a little bit clearer in Titus chapter 3 verse 5 he says he saved us remember it's he who saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness remember there's nothing good in us nothing God has given us his righteousness and declared us righteous and he's even saying that even the works that we do as righteous don't save us they never will it's only the work of Jesus Christ according to his own mercy by the washing, of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That word washing there is that baptism. That is through baptism that we're regenerated. That word regeneration in the Greek means to literally be born again. That's what that word means. Through baptism, we are born again new in our spirit and in our soul, completely new. And renewal. The word there means new life you've been baptized born again into a new life not just in the future but now in your spirit and soul no longer a slave to sin The sin no longer has power over your spirit and soul completely new creation remember when Nicodemus comes and talks to Jesus Jesus says this to Nicodemus he says very truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again and Nicodemus is thinking again of our physical bodies. He's saying, how is that possible? Am I to re-enter my mom's womb and then be born again? And Jesus says this to him. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. If they are washed, regenerated, and renewed by God. Remember, at the moment of our baptism, at the moment faith is produced in the heart, God gives faith, He declares us righteous, and He gives us a new life, led by the Spirit whom He gives us at the same moment. It is the Spirit that marks us as righteous, as reborn, new creations. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Jesus said. And Paul says it a little bit different in 2 Corinthians where he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone believes in Christ, if anyone has been baptized in his name, have been given faith, the new creation has come. Not will come, but has come. The old is gone, the new is here. We are literally new creations, reborn into the image of God in our spirit and our soul. No longer under the power of sin. And when you think about how Paul writes about sin in chapter five and how he writes about it here and how he will write about it in chapter seven, he personifies sin and death. He sees them as a power that Satan uses. Sin, not just the sins we commit, but sin that enters the world through the transgression of Adam, brought with it death. And so he says, that sin, that usurper to the throne, no longer has power over us. He's been defeated that doesn't mean that we won't wrestle with the tyrant again. And he'll get to that more in chapter 7 and chapter 8. But right now he's saying, battle's over. Been won. You've been declared righteous. You are now under a new king. The king of your heart is now the one true king, Jesus Christ. He says, for if we've been united in, with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. It was verse 5. Verse 6 says, we know that our old self, that old soul, that old spirit was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That great exchange gives us something very real, it gives us a new king of our heart. And that union is very real. We've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Literally, that self has been crucified, as we've said. But there's this prospect of new life, not just then, but now, but also then. That there will be this new resurrection. He says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. Again, not just then, but now. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead will never die again, as they saw him raised. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, all sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. As the result of what God has done, you need to consider yourselves just like Jesus. Once dead, but now alive. Completely reborn in your soul and spirit. Completely. And that's exactly how God sees you. Because that's exactly how he has remade you but any of us who live in this world know that there's still sin that we struggle with. And as I said, you'll get to that more next week. But as we go into this next section, I've titled Following God, he maps out, Paul does, two paths. He says there's this path that is marked out by sin. And sin leads to nothing but death. And there's another path marked out by Jesus, by Christ. And that leads to life. Sin always leads to death. Christ always leads to life. Always. And Paul tells us in these subsequent verses about these paths. And so what I thought I would do this morning as we conclude, as we go through these last last verses, is rather than read these verses sequentially, I want to read these verses in light of these paths. I Because Paul goes back and forth, the path of sin, the path of Christ, the path of sin, the path of Christ. And I would just like to read for you the path of sin and the path of Christ, because I think that's the point Paul's trying to make, and I think it'll help us see exactly what Paul has said and why it's so important we understand who we are. If on your card you see, on that outline where you see that section there, 11 through 23, you might want to write sin, and you might want to write Christ. And under that, I'm going to give you the verses that correspond to that. If you you write sin, you can write down verse 13, verse 16, verse 19, verse 20, 21, and 23. I'll give you the next ones later. Starting at verse 13, Paul says, therefore, because you are a new creation, because of what Christ has done for you, do not let Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, of sin which leads to death? I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Sin's aim is always death. And he doesn't want any one of us to be fooled to be deceived into thinking that any sin is okay. Just a little sin. He says, no matter the size, it always leads to death. The purpose that sin came into the world was so that we would follow the usurper and not the true king. And whenever we offer ourselves in obedience to sin, he's saying, that's exactly what you're doing. You're following, you're choosing to follow the usurper no matter what the sin. Sin always presents itself, usually, as something that is pleasurable, something that is good for you. It's kind of like our little cat Jimmy at home. He's a little nine-pound cat that is the sweetest thing in the world, and our three-year-old grandson can pick him up, and he goes limp, and he can do anything to him he wants. But let Jimmy outside, and you better not be a chipmunk, a mouse, or any kind of small rodent, because he's an assassin. Literally, he's an assassin, and that's exactly how sin parades itself, as this sweet little thing that is deadly. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. That's where every sin leads. That's the whole aim of sin, It's to lead you into death. Paul's saying, that's not who you are. You're a new creation. You need to understand, you need to be aware that that's what sin is about. And so he tells us the path to life. Verses 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 19, 22, and the last half of 23. Paul starts in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. I want to stop right there because he says something I think we need to truly understand. It says, let not sin, therefore, reign. Paul tells us we have a choice. We have a choice to obey sin or not. We decide. It is Jesus that's marked us, that has given us his righteousness, has justified us. That's everything that God does. But he's saying because the, po- because the power of the Holy Spirit lives in us, we can then, we are not just human anymore. We can then obey God. Before, no possibility. But now, with the Spirit living in us, we can no longer say, well, I'm just human. You know, I'm only human. You know, I'm just human. He's saying, No, you're not. You're not only human. You've got the power of the living God living in you, you are no longer powerless. Sin has been defeated. You have the power to resist sin. Each one of us who called Jesus our Lord and Savior, whom he's given his spirit, have the power to resist sin. That's why he says, let therefore sin not reign. You present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, and your body, your physical mortal body, not just your spirit and soul, but everything, present that to God for instruments of righteousness to be used by him in his hand. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace, under grace in everything that it concerns, your righteousness, you being justified, you having the spirit living in you. Verse 15, what then, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? Same thing you said before, but this time of obedience, obedience to Christ, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, which you are no more, have become obedient from the heart. From the soul and the spirit to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. To the teachings of Jesus. As we'll hear later, Jesus' command to go and baptize. But to teach those baptized to obey everything that Jesus taught. That's the teaching. That's the life that Jesus promises. To which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Righteousness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Your entire body, and there's that word, sanctification. Here's the way I would define it this morning the spiritual growth that follows justification, the looking, the living, the loving, more like Jesus. Paul says, present yourselves, offer yourselves, your whole body, as slaves. To righteousness, leading to sanctification. We will not truly be fully sanctified until this life is over, until we're with Jesus. But until the, in the meantime, his work in us is to make us look, live, and love more like Jesus. As we cooperate with the Spirit, as we seek to offer ourselves to him, he changes us in our physical bodies. He's completely changed us in our inner being. But our outward being, is being changed and offered to him. Kill off this old man, as we'll learn in subsequent chapters, and offer our bodies, not just our spirit and our soul, but our whole being to him, to be used by him. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our lord before the works of sin led to shame the works of sin that what fruit did you get from it other than loss and sorrow and fear and anxiety and death what did you get from it but that but here he's saying what you get from the fruit of following jesus is life the abundant life jesus talked about now and the amazing life that we have with him in heaven Jesus' promise to all of us is that is our future. And in the meantime, he's working and he's calling us to follow him, to walk in this new life, this life that Christ has given us, his life, obeying the Father. Basically, he's saying, here's what sanctification is. Sanctification is becoming what you already are what you and your spirit already is. You are a new creation. You are a saved child of God. And this life between now and the time we die is about becoming who we already are. Our whole being, being sanctified, making making us look, live, and love more like Jesus. That's what this life is about. And we're empowered to do that because we've been set free from sin and the condemnation that comes with it. See, the usurper said at the very beginning he said to adam and eve basically you could be like god you can make decisions for yourself you could be like god but what he was really after was he wanted to be god there's never been an opportunity for any one of us to be the king of our own kingdom that's a lie what he's telling us here and what scripture tells us clearly is that there are really only two. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of this world. The prince of this world is trying to overthrow, or has tried to overthrow the king of all creation, and he's failed. But that doesn't mean he still doesn't try to get us. So there's never been an opportunity for you to be king. We've always been subjects of one kingdom or the other. That's all we'll ever be. all will ever be. The question is, in in whose kingdom do you want to be subject? The one that leads to death or the one that leads to life? In all your life. God is active and moving and breathing and involved in your life, longing and desiring for you to experience Christ's life now. To be his example now. Tell the world now what he's about. Joshua said to the children of Israel, you know, you can go back and serve those gods of your fathers. But you should choose this day whom you shall serve. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. We who are children of God, we will serve the Lord because we have been declared so. That is who we are. Start becoming who you already are. Start living that new identity today. Pray that for each of you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.